This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello. Are you looking to invest in real estate? Are you thinking about buying a place maybe overlooking Central Park or Lake Ontario or Lake Michigan? Well, UBS is out with their Global Real Estate Bubble Index, and they have the answer. Welcome to Money Beat. I'm Stephen Grosser. I'm joined with Sarah Krause and Chris Dietrich. And on the phone, we have John Walshin, co-head of America's Fundamental Research at UBS Wealth Management Chief Investment Office. And he's here to break it down. How are you doing, John? I'm doing very well, Stephen. Thank you for having me today. So I, I guess we can jump right into the question. What are the cities in the world that are the riskiest if you're going to be investing in real estate today? Uh, straightforward question, obviously a little bit more of a complex answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I, the question I get from clients a lot is, is this a good time to buy? Uh, and typically, you know, I'll leave the commercial real estate clients aside, more of the, uh, you know, the housing-related uh, clients. And I always go back to them with a series of questions. And I think one of the most important questions is, why are you buying? Are you buying for investment? Are you buying for shelter? And I think that's an important consideration because what tends to flow out of that are questions like, what's your time horizon? What are your liquidity needs? And so I think it's very important to put that in the context of looking at at this global bubble index because if one said, I'm looking to buy for shelter, then we can point to very expensive cities, and obviously, whether it's Toronto, whether it's Hong Kong, which are very expensive. Hong Kong's been expensive for ages. Then we're talking about a, probably a different conversation than one of saying, look, I'm a pure investor, and I am looking for the following returns. And so I think one of the ways to utilize this index, and I, and I think one of the things that, that is, is, is done well here, say, don't confuse that we say something is in bubble territory, overvalued with, therefore prices must go down. But I think it's a good gauge to, if you are looking purely for investment purposes, it's, one needs to consider you know, where these cities rank up, not only against each other, but against themselves you know, to prior history. What so I it? hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, one of the things that I found really sort of shocking in this report was that buying a 650-square-foot apartment exceeded the budget of people who earn the average annual income in the highly skilled service sector in most world cities. So maybe you can give us a rundown of within the cities we think of as global, the London, New York, Toronto, where are the bubbles as you guys saw them in this report and and maybe talk a little bit among the, the bubbliest um, as to what's driving that? Well, I think the one that really jumps off the page and the one I think we highlight the most is is Toronto. And look, Toronto is A, a beautiful city, uh, and B, uh, it has certainly attracted not only uh, people moving there, but it's attracted a lot of investment. It also benefited from uh, there was a very, uh, very arcane tax that was put in British Columbia uh, a couple of years ago, which I think subsequently has been put on in Toronto. But I think that that sort of helped drive some money, uh, drive money there. But what really jumped out at us was 
in the last two years how quickly Toronto moved up. So I think it's just important when people read this report is to not, A, hear the word bubble and get scared, oh my God, it's going to be 2008, 2009 again, but understand that we're looking at things, you know, it's not only relative to other cities, but relative to themselves over time. So whereas Toronto in the last couple of years, relative to itself, has moved up dramatically in terms of, you know, more aggressive valuation, Chicago still continues to lag and probably represents, for those with a longer-term horizon and good liquidity, a very interesting place to be thinking about. You know, one of the other things that stood out, we always think here in New York, a very New York view, I suppose, that New York is the be all and all when it comes to price and that it's one of the more expensive places. But I think that one of the things that stood out for me in this was that actually in San Francisco, you have a lot more sort of the bubble territory, whereas in New York, because the sort of shifting dynamics between the tech sector and finance, it actually wasn't quite as high on the list as I would have expected to see it. Yeah, and New York's an interesting market, and you know, more and more, New York is bifurcated. It's probably more trifurcated than anything. But when I say bifurcated, I think what's got the obvious, you know, everybody's attention. Nick and I were talking offline earlier about this, where you know, everybody, the old if it bleeds, it leads. I'm clearly dating myself that I know that phrase. So everybody focuses on the the billionaires' row, the stuff on Central Park South that's five, six, seven plus thousand dollars a square foot. So that's a market that at one point was very hot, but has slowed dramatically. Whereas if you look at the median, and you know, for people who live in the Midwest, the United States, these numbers may sound large, but the median condominium price for the median-sized condo in New York is held fairly steady in the kind of 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 million dollar range, and that's been a reasonably, you know, I wouldn't say it's it's a fantastic market, but it's a really relatively steady market, and so. New York's a very interesting market that I think one really has to look, like with all numbers, I think one has to look beneath the surface. So I think that's number one. Number two, obviously in New York, uh, 10 years ago, if people had suggested living in parts of Brooklyn or Long Island City or things like that, they would have looked at you very cross-eyed, where some of those markets have become incredibly hot. You know, where San Francisco uh, is certainly much more, is interesting, a lot of people tend to think of New York as being very much dominated by financial services, and obviously financial services is still very, very important, whereas New York has become a much more diversified economy in terms of, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's media, whether it's certainly financial services, so whether they call them, you know, the TAMI tenants, uh, the fire tenants, uh, finance, insurance, and real estate, and so forth. We have a much more diversified economy relative to San Francisco, which has clearly been impacted by a couple things. Number one, the immense tech wealth that's been created. And number two, San Francisco, number one, has very limited land. And number two, a lot of, a lot of things in San Francisco are self-inflicted wounds because they have very, very challenging um, de- uh, development rules. California is a very, very expensive city or state to develop in. Uh, to begin with. And then once you get into different parts of San Francisco, obviously the, the local ordinances can make it very, very challenging. And so not, not here to point fingers at anybody, just to understand the realities of the market. So I think that's one of the other reasons that you see the differential between New York and San Francisco. You know, John, clearly all of the different real estate markets across the globe, even in megacities, are, are, are pretty local, right? Each is, is pretty uh, different than the next. But there are some clear commonalities um, driving... 10% annual price gains across so many cities are, are, are you know, the ability to, to finance, right? I mean, mortgage rates, how much, um, how much has just low rates, you know, really helped price booms in all these global cities 
And what what does that mean as we're you know potentially looking at higher rates? Yeah, look, it's a very fair point. And if you look at uh, if you sort of in, in, and this is one of the analyses that I do, I just went back and I indexed back to 1990 uh, median household income growth just here in the United States, uh, and then I and I index that relative to median home price growth, and. If I just asked the average person, I said, do you think there should be a relationship between income growth and home price growth? I think most people would say just from pure logic perspective, the answer is yes. And so then what happened was we had that, that, that relationship, which we all, I think, would agree is quite logical. And then we had the housing, you know, the true housing bubble, you know, kind of 04 to, depending on where you were in the country, mid-07. So after we had the bursting of the housing bubble uh, and, and everything sort of mean reverted, we once again had the situation where home price grow, home prices in, here in the United States have significantly outpaced uh, uh, income growth. And I think when you're in a city, and let's look at Hong Kong, where the size of the apartments are very small and the prices are very, very high, obviously a small move to the upside in interest rates would have a much more significant impact, say, if you were in Peoria, Illinois, not to pick on Peoria. And so when I talk to our clients about this, I, you know, I, I talk about our house view, and you know, I look at the macroeconomic indicators, uh, I look at what central banks are doing around the world, and I, I, you know, I, I do believe, and we as a firm do believe, that rates will be lower for longer. But I think what we don't have and probably will not have are declining rates, and I'm air quoting this, bail us out. So I think when, when one is thinking of investing in real estate, uh, even if you don't think rates are going to go up from here, and that's obviously going to be a personal decision, I would be very cautious not to underwrite declining rates here, and I think that is an important consideration. Okay, let's take a break there. We're talking about the global real estate market, and you're listening to Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Enjoy our podcast? Then listen in your car. Before you start down the road, just sync your smartphone using Bluetooth or plug into the USB port. Got Apple CarPlay? Just tap on the podcast app and search for WSJ. So, the next time you're getting behind the wheel, take us along and enjoy the ride. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. I'm here with Sarah Krause and Chris Dietrich from the Wall Street Journal. And on the phone, we have John Wallachin, who's the co-head of America's Fundamental Research at UBS Wealth Management. And we're talking the global real estate market and, you know, what areas of the market are sort of getting bubblish and what are undervalued. John, your report, I found, has, has a lot of fascinating stats in it. And one of the ones that I that sort of jumped out at me was despite... Prices escalating, you know, thirty percent since two thousand seven. The I guess it is. Let me look it up here. The ten-year average cost um, for the apartments or annual usage cost for apartments is still below the ten-year average in in many cities. That really does speak um, to the the low rates that uh, buyers are getting. Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. And, you know, look, interest rates are a very important uh, part of, of the, uh, the calculus 
in in buying any piece of real estate. So clearly, one of the things that uh, has benefited real estate is, is the uh, the absolute level of interest rates. Now, obviously, you know the ten-year Treasury, and that's that's our. That's the benchmark we tend to think about when we think about longer-term rates have bounced around. But if you look at where 10-year rates were in 07 versus where they are today, it's been a, a huge uh, real estate has been a huge beneficiary of that. Uh, and so I think in in one's investment decision uh, uh, process, ultimately that. Even if, and this is a conversation I have with our clients a lot, particularly our commercial real estate clients, that I say, even if you can borrow fixed for, you know, let's say it's a commercial property you borrow 10 years, or you can borrow fixed, uh, we still have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage in this country. That's great. But understand that interest rates will still impact the value of real estate. So I'm sure some of your listeners uh, were, were around for those, those really less than inspiring days in the late 70s and early 80s of 18 and 20 percent <laughs> mortgage rates. Now, we're not calling for that, obviously. But the point being that you know, real estate, think of any long-duration asset, will be sensitive to movements in interest rates. And so uh, what I'm trying to say is, yes, interest rates uh, are a very, very important part of the calculus. And even if one can borrow fixed, there is still the, the question that one has to ask is, what will the impact on the market be of rising rates? Should rates, you know, you know, not rise? I'm not talking 10 or 20 basis points, but I'm talking a couple hundred basis points. You know, I'd like to talk for a little bit about foreign buyers and the impact that they've had on some of the increases in home prices globally. Um, can you talk a little bit about whether that interest continues to be strong, and if so, where it tends to come from, or if that starts to wane as prices and valuations peak? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and uh, I don't think there's a consistent answer to it. Uh, Well, I would say a couple things. That if you look in a lot of the cities that have seen inflows of money, whether uh, it's New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, here in the United States, whether it's London, uh, whether it's Hong Kong, uh, there is some consistency in terms of where that money comes from. Uh, that, and a lot of that money is coming from, you know, whether it's the Middle East, whether it is uh, Eastern Europe, whether it's South America. And so I think one of the things that you see uh, when, when foreign money flows into those jurisdictions is the focus on safety of principle and safety of capital. What I like to say is the reason foreign money goes to a lot of these cities um, and I'm, let me focus here in the U.S. for just a sec. Um, you know, we may have our political challenges here, but we have a relatively stable political system. We have the best uh, best set of property laws in the world. We have the deepest capital markets in the world. So a lot of the money that you see uh, f- uh, fueling some of these price increases are coming from countries that don't necessarily have that stability. Uh, now, obviously, it's been very well uh, reported in the press and certainly um, in, the Wall- in the Wall Street Journal as well that China is, is trying to crack down on, on high-profile uh, real estate deals around the world and trying to restrict capital outflows. And, you know, that will ebb and flow. But I think one thing that doesn't change is when money uh, – when and money, for all intents and purposes, f- flows freely around the world, obviously with some exceptions. But the point here is that the capital seeks its highest risk-adjusted return. And I think it's an important phrase. Now, it may sound like an amorphous concept to some people, but just think about it from this perspective. Am I being – is the return that I p- believe I'm going to get – 
is it comment or is that reflecting the risks I believe I'm taking. So when you think about, you know, the risks, you know, I'm investing in a city or a country. Well, there's obviously political risks. Uh, there's financial risks. There's geo, there's uh, there there's geopolitics. There there's fear of you know trade wars and things like that. So where you see a lot of foreign capital going is to countries that have more stability when it comes to those things. And obviously, can we have situations that are unforeseen or that uh, surprise us? Yes, that's why I call them surprises. But I think at the end of the day, foreign capital, particularly in a more yield-starved world, is going to look and say, where can I get better, and it's important to understand, risk-adjusted returns. So absolute level of returns, say in London or San Francisco, because prices are so high, may be lower when you you overlay risk of investing here versus, um, say, some of the countries I mentioned earlier, whether it's in South America, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, or have you, I think that changes the calculus for a lot of investors. Now, one question I get related to this is currency, and it's a very, very fair question. Uh, and there's some, a, lot, a lot of the foreign buyers are very, very sophisticated uh, when it comes to currency. But for uh, a lot of these investors, it goes back to, again, safety of principle. So if they have a very long time horizon, and a lot of foreign investors have very long, I'll go back to the, the Japanese in the 80s. I mean, they had time horizons that were 50-plus years. So when we start to have that conversation with investors, then currency becomes less of a factor than our investing because they're saying I'm looking for stability of principle over a very long time horizon. So I think to go back to your original question, do I think foreign capital will continue to flow into those cities that are are business centers that have political and economic stability? I think the answer is yes. You know, a flip side to that question is sort of the local policy um, side. I'm thinking of places like Vancouver, which I think last year it was maybe enacted taxes on foreign home buyers. I mean, to what extent should you know prospective buyers think about local political considerations? Should that factor into the decision making at all? Yeah, it's hugely important. And not only did uh, did uh, British Columbia put a 15% withholding tax on 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 foreign buyers of of real estate in in the region, they also put a vacancy tax. So what they're trying to do is, because the Chinese have been very active buyers in Vancouver and in British Columbia for a very long time, and they're trying to really crack down on on just pure absentee buyers, if you will. Uh, So it's always a risk. Um, I will tell you, it's very difficult to handicap. Uh, but nonetheless, understanding local politics is crucial. And one thing I always say to our clients, you know, I don't care whether you're talking about investing in a local municipality or investing in a global city. It's very, very important that you work with local council, uh, local, local brokers and people who know the local scene, because understanding the local politics, local zoning, uh, what's on the docket. Uh, you know, one thing that I think a lot about is you know, potential changes to Proposition 13 in California, and it's been it's bubbled up over the years. Could there be potential changes to it? And you know, I think that will bubble up and down. But the point is, understanding those potential risks are very important. Right, and that was a factor at play in London as well, which um, you know, interestingly, as a result of stamp duties on on luxury properties and and other regulatory changes, there actually ended up squelching some of the valuation increases in the in that super high end. 
um, of the market, which I thought, you know, to your point about really understanding the local dynamics, that's certainly something that changed rather abruptly and impacts, you know, the attractiveness of those properties. Yeah, yeah no, it's an excellent point. And I tend to think of it a little bit like the hotel business. And I mean, it may sound a little odd, but next time you travel, look at your hotel bill. And you look at the number of different charges, state tax, city tax, local franchise tax. This, I mean, it's, five, it's, it's a very easy way, and I'm air quoting the word easy, to raise tax revenue. And so if you think about, you know, and this is obviously not a, only a U.S. phenomenon, no one is going to cry a river for the ultra-wealthy getting hit with a tax, particularly that is only going to hurt the ultra-wealthy. So I think it is something that that, one, that, that investors need to consider, uh, particularly uh, you know as uh, as the search for tax revenue on a global basis will always continue to grow. I mean, when I was growing up, one of the phrases was the only certainties in life are death and taxes. And so to me, the only certainties in life are, are death, taxes, and the degree politicians want more taxes. So I think it's an excellent point. Uh, one final question just before we're wrapping up is just I'd, I'd love to get a general kind of view of who, the, you know, your clients and how, uh, you know, focused have they been on the real estate markets, um, you know, in recent years. As an investment, I think the answer is uh, a lot, and that number is growing. And I think that number is growing for a couple of reasons. You know, obviously, number one, in this relatively low global yield environment, uh, real estate certainly has been attractive to people, number one. But number two, I think what's been particularly interesting is that if you go back to uh, when the global, uh, when the, the great global recession uh, started you know, in 2008, one of the, the, the little known facts, and I'll just give you the U.S. numbers for now, the U.S. commercial real estate prices actually fell on an aggregate basis more than U.S. home prices. Now, obviously, certain, you know, I'm giving you, you know, national averages, which is it's a surprising statistic when I show it to people. But the reason I bring this up is because even though home prices in some markets have done extremely well, generally commercial real estate has really shown its mettle. Uh, now, that doesn't mean commercial real estate prices can't go down. I'm not saying that. But I think when people are looking at, wow, despite all this really, really challenging stuff that went on, commercial real estate came back in a big way. And so I have seen more and more interest amongst our clients, you know, whether it's investing directly in real estate, whether it's through private equity funds, uh, different ways, because I think they see it as a, as a stable part of a long-duration portfolio uh, where it will be less correlated, so less correlated to, you know, you know more market stuff, so your, your, your typical you know, portfolio diversification, uh, but it also brings uh, a, le- a level of income that is important to people. And I think people, I, I think the individual investor has gotten much more sophisticated and savvy about thinking about real estate as its own por- portion of a portfolio. You know, it used to be in the old days you would have, when you would talk to a portfolio manager uh, or a financial advisor, they would say, well, you have your bonds, you have your stocks. And then you have other. Other used to be alternative investments, whether it's hedge funds, whether it's private equity funds, whether it's real estate. And more and more you are seeing, and this is not a, only a phenomenon only to high net worth investors, but you're seeing this also amongst you know, large global institutional investors. More and more real estate is becoming a, a separate line item because I think people realize the, the long-term – long-term value diversification uh, benefits uh, and just uh, just how it can positively impact a long-term a long-term holding 
uh, period. Thank you. That's been John Walshin, co-head of America's Fundamental Research at UBS Wealth Management. Thanks, John, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Chris. And uh, listeners, we'll be back later in the week. Thanks a lot.